you're constantly exposed in this digital ecosystem and you wouldn't walk outside naked. So maybe you should think about, you know, what the equivalent is from a, from a technology standpoint. Well, thank you for taking, thank you for taking uh, time out of your busy schedule. Absolutely loved reading your book. And uh, so first, I, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Jeff Engel. I am the, uh, the president and chairman of Conquest Cyber. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the uh, special operations community, spent my, my formative years in one of our special missions units, um, and then ended up uh, getting medically retired at 28 and had to, to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So I, uh, I kept going to the sound of the guns and taken on um, challenges to national security it led to, um, you know, through the infectious disease route, which I think a lot of people find interesting, you know, particularly in the wake of COVID and, uh, and now into the, the cyber defense arena. Now, how do you end up in the cyber defense arena? I mean, I read it in your book, but is that something you wanted to go into or do you just end up in the cyber defense arena? So I, uh, I started my career in, uh, in weapons of mass destruction. So, I, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I was good at science. And then, you know, when, it, uh, when I joined the Army, it sounded like it was a cool job. So uh, it just so happened that, you know, I came in at the right time where we ended up in, uh, you know, in a, in a conflict where weapons of mass destruction were the concern. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was in reconnaissance then and then ended up going into the counterterrorism world and counterterrorism WMD. Um, and then, you know, all of that experience and training and all that led to, global infectious disease. And, uh, and I realized kind of at the, uh, one of my transition points, I was in uh, the defense threat reduction agency. So I was doing two jobs. One of them was a mission assurance job, uh, doing vulnerability assessments of critical infrastructure globally. And the other one, uh, they pulled me into the, the red team. Um, and it was, uh, you know, getting more into the, the cyberspace arena. Um, so, you know, whatever I, you know, I found that my passion, you know, sits in national security and, and risk management is generally the same, regardless of where it's applied. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I ended up kind of making the transition. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, cyber right now is the source of some of the greatest threats to our national security. So I've kind of taken the collective experience that I've built over time and, and I've started applying it to this, this particular arena. Yeah. So you wrote this book, All the War They Want. What what caused you to come up with the title for the book? So I, I've been writing the book for uh, many years, and um, the title kind of came at the end. Um, there were, you know, it, it originally started with trying to uh, to provide an outline and an explanation for, for why, you know, I, I do what I do, and I, I, I take some of the approaches that I have. Um, because they are unconventional, right? It's not, you know, when you look at MBA programs and read business books, you don't hear um, the perspective that, that, you know, that I've built over my career very often. So uh, it came at the end and I realized it's, for me, it's about having something to wake up and, and, uh, and have worth fighting for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's worth fighting for, then, uh, then you want to win. And, so all the war they want came from the, you know, the title came from, from that reality. Like if you're going to, if there's something that's worth fighting for, it's worth, uh, it, it's worth, you know, making sure that you take every potential advantage and, and put it in your favor um, to ultimately, uh, ultimately win. 
And, you know, my hope was to inspire other people who, who have uh, a desire to do what I'm doing, right. To join in this particular fight. Um, but build a model that based on some of the experiences that I've gained, that no matter what it is that you want to fight for, you know, you can take those same approaches, mm. um, kind of, kind of ignore the traditional, you know, the thought process and, and structure and policy where, where we think that people, you know, that above us, you know, leadership, people who are in the, uh, you know, executive ranks, you know, either in corporations or, or government that somehow they know, you know, better, um, you know, really they're just, they're just making calls and it's a lot of guesswork. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, yeah, that was what I was shooting for. And, and, uh, and I think that that title captures, uh, the idea that, you know, when you have something that's worth fighting for, there's a reason behind it. Typically it's that somebody else has chosen or Mm -hmm. society is kind of structured, um, a challenge that's, that's hard enough to put all your effort behind solving. No, I, I love that. And I really appreciate it. And that came through in the book. I really enjoyed the passion and really appreciate it. Not just your passion for the work you do, but through the encouragement for people to kind of do cool stuff, right? And makes an impact. I like that a lot. If, if you were going to start your company today, one of the things I was just, you know, thinking about with what you've learned along the journey, clearly in the book, you've learned a lot. What would you do differently? Not, not even switching to a different company. That's sort of a different question I was going to ask too. But like, if you were going to start your company today versus, I'm not quite sure how long you've been in business now, but what would you do differently? What have you learned along that journey? What would you, um, how yeah. would you? You know, I, I think uh, when, I, when I first began um, the business, there were a lot of people that I, I knew, I liked, I trusted. Um, and, and I didn't feel comfortable putting them at the same level of risk that I was willing to take. So hmm. I waited... Um, you know, until the business got to a point of maturity that it, that I was confident in our ability to go and execute before I went out to the, you know, to the community that I came from and, and my, you know, uh, colleagues, people I had built trust with and said, at this point, it's safe, it's a safe enough bet to come and join me. Hmm. Uh, if I, if I had to do this over again, I would, I would have gone to them in the beginning and said, this is a risky bet but you should join me anyway. Um, so I, I, I didn't want to put anybody who, you know, um, whose trust that I had earned or who, who had earned mine in the same level of risk that I was taking. Um, and, and I think now I would, I would let them make that choice rather than, uh, you know, the kind of making that choice for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And I guess along the same lines, and I, I love the fact that you're doing the work you're doing. So don't take this as leaving Conquest Cyber because I, I personally am doing that work for, for our country's sake. Um, but if you were going to pick a different high impact, cool thing to do, I was curious if you were going to pick like another business or the next business, what would be another area that you're excited about? Just get passionate about. So this is, I, I get asked this quite a bit. Um, there and there are really two things that I've talked about because I've spent my career going to what I thought was the greatest threat to national security. Yeah. I don't think that that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So there, there are two topics and depending on, you know, who in my, you know, my leadership team or my, my organization today or in my ecosystem, who you at, who, who you ask, they would, they would lean one way or the other, but essentially um, I think information warfare is a, is a major problem worth solving. Yeah. Right. Uh, right now, people don't um, they 
they hear really an echo chamber. They have one, you know, they hear it from one source or one voice mm -hmm. and there's always um, an agenda behind the information they're getting. Mm -hmm. And the, the yeah. level of effort it takes to, to validate the you know, information before you consume it and have to, to trust uh, is too high for most people. Yeah. So we end up with a lot of, a lot of challenges with understanding what our, what, what is reality, what's happening on the ground without that bias, uh, which, which ultimately leaves us susceptible to our adversaries manipulating uh, things inside, inside of the country that, uh, that we otherwise wouldn't want them to. So, so information warfare may be the thing I take on. We'll see what's happening when I get to the other side of this journey with cyber. Yeah. Um, the other one is, um, you know, the, the climate. So, you know, when I think about in, in, in specifically the ocean, you know, when I think about um, some of the things I've seen from my travels globally, um, you know, the amount of pollution, the uh, I, I think there's um, some non-traditional ways that we're going to have to solve that problem as well. You know, we're, you know, you saw the, the, you know, the transition of, you know, plastic straws, to paper straws before that it was, you know, save the trees. Um, yeah. I think whatever you're telling people, you have to fundamentally change the way you consume, the way you, you manufacture, the way you distribute. Um, there's going to be an inherent resistance to that. So I think we, uh, trying to solve a, that problem without disrupting the way people live, but, you know, really attacking the problem of pollution and, and overconsumption and those types of things and, and, you know, potentially finding ways to, to reuse things collect and reuse um, maybe work, maybe something I take on and, you know, on the side, you know, the benefit of being out in the ocean and doing things like that is you can always do some treasure hunting. So I've been a, I've been a scuba diver since I was 15 and, you know, it's always uh, it's always fun to try and figure out where things might may, might lie hundreds of years in the future, uh, you know. So clean some things up, get some gold doubloons, you know. Yeah, that, that could be that could be a a, a cool thing, it makes an impact, and I know I can find some people that I like that would uh, be willing to jump on board and something like that. Oh, that's great. So I like what you said. Not you know you've spoken a couple times already about non traditional ways, and one of the things that Josh and I, as we were going through your book. In this section of your book, you have multiple things that say, break these rules. What caused you to come up with, not do these rules, break these rules? What caused you to come up with that? So, you know, I've, I've had this conversation quite a bit recently with, uh, we were talking about rules of engagement. And, you know, when I was in the special operations community, um, you know, there's this broad perception that we had different rules of engagement than the rest of the military. And, and the reality was our rules of engagement were exactly the same. You know, there were rare occasions where there was a small adjustment, um, but our understanding of those rules of engagement was much deeper. So rather than it be, here are the rules, here's, your, you know, here's what you're supposed to do, it became uh, a deep understanding and how it was gonna be interpreted which ultimately allowed us greater levels of flexibility. And I think that's, that's true of all of these, these rules, these, you know, the platitudes, the, you know, the, the statements of, you know, that people try to wrap their lives around. If you really understand what's, what's underpinning those, what drove that to be kind of the norm, then you'll understand when it's appropriate to follow it and when it's appropriate, you know, to break that rule. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just blindly follow whatever it is without really understanding it, then you'll apply it in the wrong situations. And ultimately, the, uh, the intent 
behind its establishments will be lost. So I, I say break them, not with the, not from the perspective of, you know, never follow this rule, um, but break them, get to a point where you understand these rules and, the, and what underpins them well enough to where when the, the input you have, the data that you're exposed to says to do something different, you can, and you can defend it. Got it. Well, that actually, I think you answered my question around that because when I read it in the introduction, my first thought was, wait a second, like how, when is, when, where's that line between breaking the rules and, and not sort of, none of the rules you suggested break were, were like ethically or morally questionable, but I was like, where does that line end up, right? That was my first thought. Yeah. In the introduction. I think what you just said, which was, you know, if you understand the reasons and the underpinning for why that rule is in place, and that would, that would actually enable you to stay even more soundly inside the ethics and, and moral kind of obligations of the law. Yeah. Is that right? Abs- absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't advocate for, for blindly breaking any rule. Right. I think that, you know, that, that ultimately, um, you know, rules provide order and structure and predictability. So you can make the, make better decisions and the kind of basic things are, are well outlined, mm-hmm. you know, things like, you know, building codes and enforcement, you know, those are tied to, you know, the, the hazards that exist in the area and where they put fire departments and the, you know, the length of the ladder and the location of the fire hydrants. Mm-hmm. So when they're part of an overarching ecosystem and you really understand them, you know, right, that generally we need to follow those because there's so many other elements in the ecosystem that are dependent on them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next question, your next question. Well, I'm going to ask the question I want to know. So I oversee about 80 employees at my company, and I get where you say break these rules. But where my mind goes, because I have executives, I have managers, I have team leads, some people are capable of making those decisions. Other people are not. How how do you deal with that? Because not everyone's created equal. And even one of your rules is don't, I think it's don't, Treat everyone as equal. How do you deal with that? Because I see what you're saying. I see where you're going. But what do you do when not everyone can understand the implications of this? Yeah. If if you can't understand the implications of breaking the rule, then you then you should be following it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But but my view is, I need people in my immediate ecosystem, like the what I consider like the plank holders. Right. And everybody in their ecosystem to all be building towards a great enough understanding of the system that's in place to where if the risk dynamic meet, you know, necessitates them um, going or changing something, that they'll know to do it um, and not just stop because, you know, there's a step that they can't do. Right. Not all things are created equal. Not all people respond the same way. but the the goal should always be, especially if you're going to be a leader, um, to understand the system that's in place well enough to know when it's not working or or the it's just not as applicable. Mm-hmm. So so absolutely, I I want the system to work, right? And in order for the system to work, all pieces of the system must function as designed, which means they must follow the associated rules. But as leaders, you have to know if the strategy is off and the execution is solid. That means everybody's following the rules as designed, but you're not getting the outcome that you're looking for. Right. Right. But if, 
but if everybody's breaking the rules or they don't understand them and the strategy's solid, it'll you won't get the outcome that you're looking for either because the execution will be off. So I'm always, you know, asking that question of myself and my team. If something's not happy, not giving me the outcome that I'm looking for, is it the strategy or is it the execution? Because if it's the execution, that's an, you know, a cultural accountability issue or even hierarchical accountability or potentially a training issue. But if the strategy's off, that's on, you know, that's on the leader. Like we, you need to make that change as rapidly as possible and not just be held to uh, keep doing things the old fashioned way, because that's what some mythical person came up with, you know, and it, so it must be right. Yeah. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Different question. Um, I'm not, it's a bit of a long question, mostly because I'm reading part of the book. You wrote it, so you don't need to know it, but <laughs> for those who are hearing this, I'll read a little bit. Um, but chapter four, you're talking about doing cool stuff, which I really liked. You started alluding to a little bit of what was coming in six there, I think, around the people you like. And you said something really interesting I want to talk a little bit about. You said, um, I think it's page 71, you're looking for those individuals who see all the flaws in bureaucracy, you see the limitations of conventional approach, you're looking for the disruptors, the architects, those, what I like, this restless souls, not satisfied with the status quo. And I like this because um, sounds like this is how you've recruited your team at uh, Conquest Cyber. And I've had, I've worked with a lot of startups who I think could benefit from that, you know, do a lot of consulting work with startups. I guess what I'm wondering as I read that was wanting to ask you how, how would a leader apply this? Because I also work with a lot of like large, very well-established health systems and, and hospital and care clients who are sort of slow moving, right? And they've got a lot of uh, legacy baggage, right? And wait, so I was trying to figure out how do you apply sort of that thinking when you may not have very much freedom or authority to just wholesale swash off the executive team overnight, right? And get those plank holders in, right? So how would you apply sort of that thinking to these larger, maybe slower moving or more established legacy companies? Yeah. I mean, so historically what, uh, what we've done, if you're in a, if you're in a legacy, large organization uh, and you identify there's somebody like that, that maybe is a little bit disruptive, um, I have reached in and I protect those people as much as I possibly can you know, to, to keep them separated from those who, who view their, um, their attitude, their approach, their, their thought process as, as inherently negative because they're, they're questioning the why, right. And why we're doing things this way, why, we, you know, um, why we couldn't, you know, try to make it a little bit better, why we allow people who, who are just, you know, punching a time card to show up and, you know, and get promoted on the minimums, you know, isolating those people, not from a perspective of lack of engagement, but separating them from the detractors and then protecting them. Something I think is hypercritical for executives, particularly if you're in a, in a large organization that's lost a lot of its entrepreneurial spirit. Right. Uh, yeah. The, uh, so one of the, the, the sources of inspiration for the special operations community I came from uh, was the British Special Air Service. If you understand their um, that organization, their motto is "Who dares wins." And their original formation was really they they went out and found the guys who had punched their commanding officers or who were in in jail for doing something, um, <laughs> yeah, disruptive. And those were the ones who ultimately they pulled in and said, "These are the right these are the right types of people." Uh, you know, to do the unconventional things to, you know, to jump behind enemy lines and, you know, and, and take out aircraft on the ground. 
So uh, a lot of that, you know, that spirit still, you know, is kind of in my, my DNA, uh, you know, the, the people that others are saying, oh, they're really smart, but they're, you know, they're, they just won't work in the system. I mean, that's, that's the kind of people I want to surround myself with because yeah. typically they have massive amounts of potential and they're becoming more and more rare. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you see schools right now do not reward that type of behavior, right? The right. unconventional thinking, they reward, you know, blind rule following um, and, and especially in startups, but I would say any business that wants to, to have a longevity, you need people who don't need a, a, a prescriptive step-by-step guide on how to do something. You need people who are just going to find a way to get things done. Um, and, you know, they'll scrape their knees and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and as leaders, you just try to keep them out of oncoming traffic, you know, until you get to a point where you can build the broader system. Right. Now, from your perspective, in terms of coaching team members or people, instead of being blind rule followers, followers, how do you coach them to do that exactly? If they, let's say that that's all they've been taught. How do you get them from being a rule follower to thinking and acting and being proactive? Well, you know, I would be the first one to admit I have not been the most successful at um, helping people who don't have kind of the, the instinct and the DNA to find a way or make one to kind of get religion around, around, uh, unconventional approaches. Um, but the, the ones who have it, that spark that they've suppressed it, you know, I, I, I give them a, a level of focus outside of the broader, uh, engagement with the team mm-hmm. to promote, to promote them into positions where they don't have a choice, but to speak up and, and when they do, I'm, I'm the most understanding with people who are more, more junior and early in that process of kind of finding their voice and, and uh, being willing to, to take a, you know, a step out on a limb. Um, I am much harsher with my plank holders who are you know, senior leaders who, who I need to also amplify that message and you know, work with the more, you know, more junior team members. Yeah, to to be willing to step up and you know, when they walk into a room, they're sitting at the table. You know, if they're in that room, they're expected to have an opinion and share it with the group. Um, to really fight that traditional, you know, rule following, hierarchical, you know, mentality that that many organizations foster today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so another topic I want to pick your brain on too, then I sort of, um, I'm very linear in my thing. I'm working through the book. Eric's probably just picking from different places. <laughs> we compliment each other. Um, I was thinking about in chapter five, you talked about the fanaticism does not accomplish anything of value and collateral damage is, is the real impact. Um, when you talk about the importance of self-discipline, I have two questions. Well, first one I'll start with is, um, and I totally agree on the self-discipline side. Where I, where I was wondering, and I just struggled with this myself, how do you balance or try to have a foot in both passion and self-discipline? Because I could easily see, you know, self-discipline, you know, it sort of is, it's easy to sort of fall into your habits and not have the passion. But this side, you can get super passionate, but then fall out of the self-discipline. And how do you how do you yeah. yourself and how do you help others sort of do both of those? Well? Yeah, so, you know, I, I've, I've been accused of being too even keeled. I would say, um, I'm with you. <laughs> what, what, what I, what I've found is, um, you know, passion 
you know, allows for perspective. Um, fanaticism really doesn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are things that I, um, you know, there's, a, there's a North star for me. You know, I, I think about national security. I think about our way of life. Um, I think about how I grew up and, and the opportunities that I've been given, you know, um, and I want my children to be able to have, you know, better opportunity, more exposure to freedom and, and for us not to go backwards for that. Um, that is my North star. I'm passionate about that. And I'm making very, very rational decisions about how to, uh, to get to that outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I think about the fanaticism, you know, I, I think about football a lot because I, I grew up a, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and I say fan is in short for fanatic, but they're, they've been my team since I was a kid. When I meet somebody and they're a Baltimore Ravens fan, I don't hate that person because of their affiliation. Right. Um, and, and that, uh, is actually really common. You know, something is, you know, that I view and when I live my world kind of in the, the national security arena as being relatively inconsequential, other people have very, very strong emotional ties to, um, mm-hmm. similarly with, with politics, right. They, you know, if you, if you identify as a different letter, um, people go into, you know, uh, vapor lock, they have, you know, an evoked emotional response and they go into premature cognitive closure, right? They stop thinking and then they just go into whatever uh, view they have view. Yeah. Um, and, and what I learned, because uh, I, I ran for office without a party affiliation, you know, almost 10 years ago now. And what I learned was um, most people on 95% of the topics, we, we agree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you find the thing that makes them a fanatic, that one issue, the one topic, um, and as long as you're a part, you have the right letter and you're under the right umbrella, you're good. And if you are the other side of that, then you're inherently bad. Right. And I, I think that um, fanaticism is easily exploitable mm-hmm. and it, it puts in it and it really detracts from us making progress on some of these harder problems because it's easy to say, oh, if you're if you don't agree with me, you're in that other camp. And, and rally, you know, let's say 45% of any topic to your side. Um, so I, I think if there's, if there's clarity on a goal and there are steps that can be achieved, then it, passion is a, is a valuable, um, is valuable fuel. Uh, but anything that can, can be exploited, um, any uh, an evoked emotional response to anything ultimately prevents you from being able to solve the really hard problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, you sort of got to my second question on that around the political spectrum and fanaticism that I see. And actually, some of this you even addressed early on in your um, your uh, comments about information warfare. Like how it seems like we're getting more and more extreme, right? That seems to be the prevailing understanding. Like how, how do we how do we rein that back in? How, how do we help people get out of these uh, very deep sort of fanatic kind of convictions, for lack of a better word, that they you know that are blindly sort of leading them emotionally. How would you do that? So I found that if you build trust and then you start to question thinking, then you have a lot more success. Mm-hmm. The people I've, you know, the, you build, you build trust in, you know, on common grounds and we, you know, and, and like I said, 95% of any topic or of any series of topics, you're going to end up getting agreement from people in, in the U S you find common ground, you build trust, then you can start to have harder conversations. I mean, I've had, 
in my in my life i i'm surrounded by people who who fit all over the map and in, in the the political spectrum the edu- you know education the financial status um and i am known for being someone who uh challenges their way of thinking not because i'm trying to guide them towards a particular um set of beliefs but because my belief is you should challenge the way that you think um, internally, externally all the time. And because they don't know where I stand on a particular topic and they just trust me because we have common ground, um, they're, they're a lot more open to it. Mm-hmm. As soon as they can, as soon as anybody can pinpoint, uh, well, this is your belief and now we're in war, right? Or this is your belief. So right. now we're in, you know, in alignment. It, it shuts down all of those, you know, um, those mental processes mm-hmm. that allow you to actually get past that, that evoked response. So that's the way I do it. I, you know, I, my normal state is questioning people's thought processes, not from a, an aggressive way or they that I disagree with them. Just, you know, asking them if they really understand the why behind whatever their response is to a particular topic area, because right. nothing is ever as simple as, as uh as we make it seem right um and most people have strong emotional reactions to things that they haven't put a lot of uh intellectual capital towards understanding so that's how i that's how i approach that particular topic okay no that's great thank you i figured you'd have some good thoughts there so your company is focused on cybersecurity, and there are, are a lot of other people who don't know as much so if you're talking to someone who's not on the cutting edge of cybersecurity, what do you want to tell either individuals who are on the internet, which is almost everyone, or leaders such as myself that oversee a large number of employees? How do we stay safe in this ever-changing environment? What would be your first yeah. or second step towards us? Yeah, I'd, uh, based on what we're seeing in the news, everybody would assume I'd just say, hey, we'll stay off TikTok or put on multi-factor authentication, right? Um, <laughs> So you think that everybody now is essentially digitally native, everything that they do, they put online. Um, I would say, you know, the, the same thing that uh, your, your parents probably told you when you were growing up and the, the internet is like, if you wouldn't be willing to put it on a billboard in Times Square, uh, don't put it on the internet. Um, but I would go further than that, that, you know, we're so connected technologically at this point that, um, Anywhere you go, anything that you do, anything that you say, whether you're you know writing it on the internet or not, you have to expect um, somebody could get access to it. So you, I think we all need to start understanding that risk management and you know is not something that is a particular uh, you know domain, but it is something that is exists across everything that we do all the time, right? You have something you care about. There's something that can negatively impact it. There's a way for that to occur. There's risk. Right? Mm-hmm. And you can either lower the probability or lower the severity of that occurrence. So if you're a, a bigger target, you know, you're a high net worth individual, you're leading a company, you've got access to sensitive data types, you're a celebrity or member of a pol- uh, political family. Yeah, they, you're, you're, um, your key relative or your, your, you know, key player in your business, they don't need to be exposing themselves. You're exposing them too. So I think if we 
just start to shift our, our mindset to everything. Everything is risk management mm-hmm. and we need to understand the, you know, even if you're okay with putting all of your information online, uh, you need to understand the, uh, the collateral damage that can be done with that as well. Um, then you can start to be at least not part of the problem, right? Um, cause I, I think we need to, you know, I talk about it a little bit, um, in the book, but I, we need to mobilize in order to build resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, we are too easily manipulated from an information warfare standpoint. Um, our critical infrastructure sectors are far too susceptible, uh, to, to attack by, you know, foreign adversaries. Um, some of the data that we're exposing, we don't think is that important, but it becomes part of a, uh, like a uh, accumulated view that can be used to target, you know, us as a country and impact our way of life. Um, so if we just, if we shift our mindset, we, you know, we, we train our kids, you know, and, and, and our parents, you know, that, um, you know, trying to kick on links, do the basics and multi-factor, but, but really just start to think that, you know, you're constantly exposed in this digital ecosystem and you wouldn't walk outside naked. So maybe you should think about, you know, what the equivalent is from a, from a technology standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have four kids and um, everything from, you know, teenagers to college students, what should I be teaching my sons and daughters in terms of how they handle this brave new world that I, you know, I grew up, you know, went to college in the late nineties and we're happy to have internet and email. It's way, way different. What should we be teaching our kids? Cause I have not been taught as a father. Yeah. Um, what, how we handle it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it starts with, uh, with basic cyber hygiene, um, you know, the, and all that stuff is readily available. I think they're starting to teach kids in, you know, in elementary school about things like passwords and, you know, multi-factor authentication and that type of thing. I think the bigger thing for, for kids in your age range is about social media. Um, I, am not susceptible uh, to some of the things that they are today because, you know, I grew up wanting to go into the, the, you know, the special operations and intelligence community. So even as technology was coming around, I never had social media. I didn't get any tattoos. I, you know, I didn't uh, get arrested or get in trouble. Um, You know, all of those things follow you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, So be careful what you put out there. Don't trust anybody with your, uh, with anything you wouldn't want, you know, on time, you know, on a billboard in Times Square. Um, and, and some of the fluency, you know, I would say it's probably equivalent to, to taxes, right? Uh, kids should be taught in school what taxes are, how, you know, how you try to manage those things, um, where, where you live and the implications of that. And I, I think the same is true when it comes to, to technology and how you use it. Uh, if you use it as a tool, then uh, that's fine. That's why, you know, billionaires don't pay a lot of taxes, right? Because they're using tax law as a tool. They use technology as a tool and you'll have, you know, you'll have a fine outcome. You don't have to be the weird kid, you know, that, that doesn't have a cell phone until they're 25. Um, that's not normal. Uh, they're part of our way of life now. So we need to, we need to be able to live with them. Well, I'm not going to show this to my kids because I think I told them they couldn't have a cell phone until they're 25. So I'm going to see. <laughs> Mine are younger than Eric, so I can tell them whatever I want at this point. They, they, they don't know you. Um, no, I'm I'm guilty of my my kids. I have a I have an 18 year old and then a, a couple of small ones, um, and and 
how I raised the 18 year old versus how I raised the small ones is, is very different, right? Mm -hmm. They, uh, they've never been part of the same family, right? They're like who I was when, you know, my daughter was, was little, um, and how black and white things were is, have shifted, you know, to the, to how the three-year-old interacts with, with technology and it gets exposed to the world. So, I mean, parents, uh, uh, the, the secret that everybody doesn't really share is, you know, we're, we're constantly learning how to be, how to be parents too, right? It's, it's not like we have the system perfectly wired and that goes back to even, you know, business leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you're the CEO doesn't mean you actually have all the answers. It just means you have all the responsibility, right? Right. So you got to make good calls. You got to be, you got to admit when, you know, you, you made a mistake or the environment changed. Um, and there's really no perfect guide to, to how to make the best decision. So you're kind of learning together with all the employees, right? Right. just like you're learning together with the kids. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit to um, the, so I, I'm a strategy consultant. I absolutely love AIDA chapter seven, the mission is a concept. I, we spend our entire business use, but we've used three. So we, I don't know if you looked at our stuff, but typically we'll do a book review, business use case episode and life application. I insisted to Eric, we spent our entire business use case episode on chapter seven. So, <laughs> so I want to ask you about it because I nerded out on that chapter. Um, how did you, I just want to know more about like the background of how you came up with it, where it came from and, and how much having done a lot of strategy exercises, not with that specific tool. I can imagine want to hear more about the effort it took to like distill your entire company down to that few words. Like that's actually really hard to do. And so I'd love to learn a little more about how you came up with it and how you got to that specific kind of output for, for your company. Yeah, I know. Um, and, and you'll see, you know, I wrote the book quite a while ago and, and people who read it now who are in the business, they're like, there's, there's no sunlight between, between what I wrote and, uh, and how we operate. And, and I'll tell you where, where it came from was uh, the way I think and the way I explain things is constantly trying to get the other, the other party to have the aha moment to actually understand, you know, and with the appropriate perspective. Hmm. So, so that chapter was literally the product of me trying to get people from all different backgrounds, levels of understanding you know, expertise levels in, in organizations to, to understand what we were trying to do. Uh, so uh, there was a massive amount of trial and error mm -hmm. uh, with, with explaining things to get to a point where somebody could walk away and say, okay, yeah, I, I get it. Um, and, and I actually used my daughter who's, uh, who's now in an intern in the business. She's, she's 18. She graduated from high school. Um, she's, and she's doing some interning with us. Uh, I, I use that, you know, now it was three years ago, um, to, to when she was a 15 year old or, and, um, and I explained it to her and she, she was like, yeah, I, I absolutely understand what it is that you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. And, and then that, that for me was, that was confirmation that I'd be able to wrap the the business around that concept for the next, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I'd love to say that I, you know, uh, woke up in, you know, in the middle of the night and had an epiphany and this is how to do it. Uh, but it was really harnessing, con you know, conceptually the, 
all of the experiences that I had around things that motivated me um, and provided guardrails to my decision making. And then, and then actually going through the process of, of sussing out what was going to resonate with people that led to, that led the particular concept that I used um, for the mission. But, uh, you know, I can't take credit for um, having the mission as a concept because that's always the way that I thought about the things that I did. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, no, I just, I really like the way you structured it and simplify it because, I mean, I work with a lot of clients and, and it's just hard for a lot of companies, all shapes and sizes to figure out how to, I mean, so I'm not surprised it was trial and error and challenge because it, it was great work, good, good to see the output, but yeah, certainly an appreciation for how hard you had to work to get there because <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, that was my favorite chapter. I was so excited about it. I can well, see I, that as a consultant. Right, right, right. You're like, this is it. Whereas what stuck out for me as a coach, you're your part on symbolism and framing, because as a coach, I'm frequently working on how do we frame whatever decision we're making? What's the story that we tell ourselves? So as you know, you were also talking in your book about symbolism and framing, how do you come to that realization or even within your business or as you're working with clients, how do you, what symbols do you use? How do you frame things to inspire people to get to that aha moment? Yeah. So so symbolism, I definitely took from you know all of my experience in the military, and I thought about you know how how I viewed the the symbols associated with people who had who I had respect for, and things like valor and activities that um, that drive people literally to put their lives on the line in, in ways, and it's and they don't end up doing it for the medal, but the way that the world sees it and sees the activity that they did and the stories that were told around what earned them that medal ultimately inform how they react in those situations. So they're not doing it for necessarily for that medal. They're doing it for the the people that are left and right, but they're informed mentally about how to do the right thing based off of how the symbol has been, uh, you know, presented to somebody else who kind of, yeah. you know, replicated that activity or did it ahead of them. So symbolism, you know, and I think about, you know, things like the purple heart that stick out, that's tied all the way back to, uh, you know, to George Washington, you know, and the, the revolutionary war, you know, it's got his, his face on it um, still today. And you think about purple heart recipients and you're like, wow, that those people have, have bled for this country um, and, and people have continued to willingly do that. Uh, I think those things are just really powerful. The framing fronts. Um, so I wrote, I wrote my master's thesis on framing and political discourse, right? So I, I, uh, I joined the military before two thousand, uh, before September 11th, uh, September 11th happened. And then I ended up on this kind of round trip tour, but Iraq was, was kind of my war. Uh, I went six times. Uh, I was there for every phase of operation Iraqi freedom. And, uh, when I wrote my thesis, I did it on how our political leaders uh, framed the justification for the war, because my job was literally to hunt for weapons of mass destruction. And the perspective was that weapons of mass destruction were the justification for the invasion of Iraq, because it really wasn't tied to, to 9-11 and terrorists. So I listened to every and listened and read everything that was said by the top four, the president, the vice president, the secretary of defense, and the secretary of state in the lead up to the war. And I found that um, almost everything that they said was true. 
it was, they were factual statements. And what would happen is they would, they would go on, they would make speeches, they would make factual statements. And then you'd get the pundits and the media and people that were, they were taking the next logical step with what they heard from those people. So it went from Saddam's a bad guy. Saddam kicked out inspectors. Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, all factual statements to the immediate response from the, the media was Saddam's a bad guy who weapon has weapons of mass destruction. I mean, it's a, it's, there's an imminent threat. So they didn't have to say anything that wasn't true. They didn't have to, um, to, to make that logical step. All they had to do was kind of set it up for the, the, the people who were going to be, you know, amplifying that voice um, to take the next logical step. So what I found in businesses as a, as a leader, if you are communicating where, where things currently stand, you're not going to be able to get anybody behind you. You have to constantly be in front of what you're able to do. Uh, especially during the early stages when you're, when you're one person and you're, and you're talking about solving critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, nobody's going to sign up as a customer for one guy. They're going to sign up as customers for the, for an idea, right? For a concept. Yeah. So you have to frame, you have to provide that symbolism, the North star, that uh, you know, something that, that people want to get behind and frame it as what it will be, not necessarily what it currently is. Mm-hmm. And not you, you're not you, misleading people. You can't, you can't be in this position and, and tell lies about what you're capable of doing, but you can set things up of this is, this is how we're going to do things differently. This is how it's going to achieve this outcome. And, and then start connecting people through symbolism and framing to that outcome that they're going to be a part of achieving or that you're going to help achieve for them, you know, in the event that they're a customer. And, uh, and I've been, been fortunate to, um, to have the ability to execute, be right behind, you know, the, the completeness of the idea. Um, so that's, you know, that's really not because I'm, you know, it, because of me, it's because, the right symbolism, the right framing, and and a healthy uh, level of anxiety that I have around alignment between what I what I say, what I commit to, and what I do, um, and I've been able to grab the right people at the right times to be able to uh, you know to grow the business and and make an impact in our you know on our customers and, and our way of life you know with uh, cyber resiliency. Um, but without the symbolism and the and the framing, I would just say, well, I'm one guy. And I'm, you know, I consider myself to be pretty smart. Do you want to give me money? And they're not going to do that, right? They were, they were, they were signing the contract and, and uh, um, you know, and, and giving me long-term commitments, uh, ultimately for things that were being executed by people that didn't even exist in the organization on the day, you know, on the day they made the verbal commitment, you know, and it was typically the day after I got a, you know, ink on, on paper, <laughs> that that uh, the, the capability was manufactured, right? right. Uh, so, dur- especially during the early stages, that's that's hypercritical. But I think your your vision always needs to be a little bit further than your grasp if you're trying to solve something as as significant as you know, cyber resiliency for critical infrastructure. That's great. I think we've got time for one more question. Yeah, yeah. So I got to ask a funny question. This may not be funny to you, so it's going to be a little risky. <laughs> I told Eric I was going to ask. He told me not to, but I'm going to anyways. So. You said break this rule, 
Never throw the first punch. Or no, yeah, yeah, break that rule, right? So important question, cultural question. You may this may not resonate. Are you a Karate Kid fan? I I am a, I am a Karate Kid fan. Have you seen? Uh, have, have, yeah. you seen have you seen the new show? Cobra yeah. Kai? The new, the, I have. Yeah. So, so what um, side of that do you fall? Cobra Kai? Because I mean, they, you know, strike first, strike hard, no mercy, right? That seems never throw the yeah. break that rule, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. So never throw the first punch is an important rule um, to, you know, you know, it's a, I wouldn't say I'm on either side, you know, of Miyagi Do or Cobra Kai. All um, right. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you, I've, I, I mentioned this, but I'm a, I'm a jujitsu guy. So right. when yeah. I think about karate, karate generally, I, uh, you know, I share, you know, I shake a little bit with, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's not, it's not my martial art. Um, but I've found that, uh, the more you, the, the more dangerous you are, right. The more skills that you have, the less likely you are to use them. So, uh, you know, when I think about Cobra Kai and the, the, the aggression, um, that's not really my bag. Um, the Miyagi-Do, you know, waiting for things to happen. Yeah. That's not really it either. Um. It makes for a good television show. Yeah, yeah, I had to ask. I just thought yeah. I laughed myself. Yeah, yeah. Eric no, was talking about. So I, I told him, yeah. you know. So, so the 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 downside is uh, of of watching things like that. Um, my my, you know, you guys know about you, know, you have like Netflix and yeah, you know, that type of thing, and they they put a picture up of you know with your profile. Um, you know, my wife thought it was funny to put up uh, Mr. Miyagi. Uh, as my profile picture in uh, in our Netflix subscription, uh, but uh, I think my I think my three year old got the better into that stick with he's uh, he's got the the boss baby, you nice. know, as his profile picture. Nice, nice. Well, that's good. Well, good. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for taking time yeah, out of your you. very busy schedule. Uh, we really enjoyed going through your book, um, so thank you for writing that um, and. You know, to anyone listening or watching this, go ahead and get Jeff's book. It's awesome whether you're in cybersecurity, running a business, or even a family, and you want to know, hey, how do, how do we do this in a, in a great way? So thank you for doing that. Yeah. No, thank you so much. I appreciate the time, and, and thank you for reading. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, and it, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I might be writing a, a second one with a, to go a little bit further. Um, David Henshaw, who, who wrote the foreword in the book, um, a good friend of mine, you know, when he, he, when he read it, you know, he called me and he said, uh, he's like, I want to know the rest of the story. Uh, you know, he wants to, you know, he wanted to know, you know, how, how did it actually work out when you applied it? And, I'm, and I told him, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're living the story. Yeah. So, uh, so it, eventually it'll, it'll make its way into print, but, uh, but right now we're, we're focused on, on driving to the outcome, but I, Thank you so much. I appreciate the time and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, that sounds good. good. Yeah, take care. Thank you very much, Jeff. Appreciate yeah. it. Cheers. Bye.